John chapter 12 finds Jesus entering again enemy territory just days before his journey will lead him to a cross where he will suffer and die for sinners. The 11 chapters up to this point have covered for us about three years worth of Jesus' public ministry. And the remainder of John's gospel takes up about a week. So the pace slows down greatly, and John begins to zoom in on the final week of the life of the Lord before the cross and a little glimpse of uh, his life after uh, the resurrection and some, some things that happened there. But so the pace slows down and the narrative stretches out. And over these next several chapters, we're going to get a lot more talking. We're going to have a lot more kind of lengthy dialogue and Jesus kind of giving final instructions to his disciples and things like that. So there'll be some great things for us to learn from the Lord as we walk with him toward the cross. So it'll still take us a while to get to the cross in our actual walk through John's gospel, but just know that in the, in the, the story, in the flow of the narrative, we are now less than a week from Jesus' final day, if you will, before he is crucified. And so our passage begins in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So six days before Passover, that is, this is Saturday night, the Passover would begin on the following Friday at sundown. So six days before Passover, Saturday night, the next morning, if you're counting and keeping track of the narrative, the next morning would be what we call Palm Sunday, where Jesus enters Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And so this is Saturday night before Palm Sunday, and he has now returned from the wilderness uh, to the village of Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The last time Jesus was in Bethany, in John chapter 11, what did he do? What happened? Yeah, he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? I hear some whispers of it, right? So Jesus raised a guy from the dead, and that tends to draw a crowd. So people are talking now, right? People are talking about Jesus. The buzz in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem is, as we saw at the end of chapter 11, verse 56, as they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? So the people are curious and excited and wondering, are we going to see Jesus? They're looking for him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, the the kind of supreme court of Jerusalem, uh, the, the Sanhedrin last week in our text, have made the decision, Jesus must die. And so they have uh, embarked on this legal uh, fugitive hunt to find Jesus, right? And we think there are probably plenty of people who would kind of hand Jesus over if they knew uh, where he was. So that's what's going on in Jerusalem. We're getting ready for Passover. Jews from all over Palestine are making their pilgrimage into Jerusalem, so the city will swell to two or three times its normal size, and everybody wants to know where Jesus is. Some perhaps out of curiosity, some perhaps out of faith and sincere desire to worship, and some for sure uh, out of evil intention to put him to death. 
And so Jesus knows when he enters Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, this is the last ride, as it were. This is him entering enemy territory to give his life. Not surprisingly, when he returns to Bethany, where he had recently raised Lazarus from the dead, verse 2 tells us, they gave a dinner for him there. They throw him a party, right? This is Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the family, and they throw a party for Jesus. It says they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And so that's the setting. Jesus entered Bethany just outside Jerusalem. There's a party with the family, probably just to say thank you to Jesus and to honor Jesus, that they're, they're guest of honor uh, for his kindness and power uh, in raising Lazarus and returning him, restoring him to life. And in the verses that unfold here, the first few verses of John chapter 12, we're going to see a portrait, if you will. John is going to paint for us really two portraits. One is a portrait of worship, a portrait of true heartfelt worship to Jesus. And the other is going to be a portrait of unbelief, a portrait really of self-worship, if we were going to get right down to it. We're going to see an expression of a heart that treasures Jesus above all, and one that would discard him for a little cash. And as we observe this scene and see these portraits, I think we'll be pressed to ask ourselves, which one am I? Which one am I? And we'll have an easy, obvious answer on definitely the worshiper, not the other one, but I think there's some opportunity for us to maybe press a little deeper into our hearts and maybe uncover some, uh, some realities that might be there, whether we like to admit it or not. So the first portrait that we get is the portrait of a worshiper, the portrait of somebody who treasures Jesus Christ. And that comes in verse 3 where Mary, the other sister of Lazarus, uh, it tells us in verse 3, follow me there. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, in some ways, that sounds a little weird to us because it's a little bit outside our cultural norms. We don't tend to anoint people. We don't tend to rub oil all over people except for like whatever, our essential oil craze and all that stuff. Craze. Uh, so anyway, um, so there's definitely some oiliness uh, in our culture today. Um, but this is a different kind of oil, right? I mean, this, this, is, a, this is an act symbolically uh, that we'll see uh, is pointing forward to, to what will unfold in the life of Jesus. But, but it is an act of honor. It, it is an act of adoration. It is an act of extravagant worship to Jesus as Mary breaks this jar open and, and pours upon Jesus this oil. Now, first of all, it tells us uh, that it is a costly oil, an expensive ointment made from pure nard, which doesn't sound all that lovely, but this would have been an imported fragrance. Nard would have been, come from China or India, something like that, and had to have been brought to Jerusalem on camel. And, right? So it's expensive because it doesn't grow where they are. And so they have this very price, uh, pricey, costly, expensive ointment. And Mary, 
breaks it all open and pours it out on Jesus' feet. The value of nard is about what we would probably equate to about $33,000. It was 300 denarii. That's how much it cost. And a denarius was basically a, a day's wages for a common laborer at the time. So if you consider like a 12-hour work day at our minimum wage and simply multiply that by 300, you come out to about $33,000, all right? So this is a small full-time salary, essentially, for a year that Mary has burst open upon the feet of Jesus. And suddenly we're kind of going, wait a minute, what are you, what are you doing? That's a, that's a little... That's a little much, don't you think, Mary? Right? I mean, I, yeah, we love Jesus, and he's worth, you know, what we have and all that, but come on, I mean, that's like a year's wages, right? You know how long I had to work to get that ointment, and I had to make an appointment with a salesman from India to get that here, and you've just busted it open all over Jesus' feet. This is an extravagant, a sacrificial, a costly act of worship and adoration. It's also an act of servitude and humility because Mary it doesn't just put it on his head, although this story does appear in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts as well. And there they say that she put it on his head. So he, she apparently put it kind of all over, right? So she put it on his head, she's put it on his feet. But she puts it on his feet, which that would be something in this day where they're wearing sandals and they're walking dusty roads and they don't like take a shower every day and that kind of thing. Like the only person who attends to the feet of a rabbi or a leader or a teacher like Jesus would be a servant, a slave. And so when Mary lowers herself to tend to his feet, she is making a statement of lowliness and humility and saying, I am your servant. It's also because we find uh, else in the other passages in Matthew and Mark, Mary is also sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing him teach. So that's probably some of what's going on at this dinner. Jesus is speaking and sharing his heart, and she is at the feet of Jesus, learning like a disciple does. And in that culture, it would have been very unheard of, very unusual for a woman to be given a place at the, the table in that sense, to be included in, in a rabbi's sort of discipleship circle. So Jesus elevates the, the place and the role of, of women and sees them as equal disciples and, and, uh, and students along with men. And so it's not as though the servitude and the humility is just because, oh, she's a woman. Because in Jesus' eyes, she is an equal disciple along with the others. And so this act of tending to Jesus' feet with this oil is, an, is, is a clear picture of her humility and her value on Jesus. She is not saying, woe is me, I'm a loser. She's saying, you are worth so much more than I could express. You are so much higher and more pure and true and beautiful than I could possibly say. And so through this act of extravagant, costly, humble worship, she expresses so much uh, to Jesus in the moment. There also would be some indignity in the letting down of her hair. It says that she wiped up the ointment with her hair. She puts the ointment on his feet and then wipes his feet down, his dirty feet with her hair that she has now let down. And again, in that culture, in that time, it would have been proper for a woman to keep her hair up and probably covered, 
right? And so now she has let her hair down and is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And this is a, a sort of a socially undignified uh, position to be in. The point of all of this, I think, is that this is probably not a premeditated, calculated decision that Mary has made. When Jesus comes later, I think I'm going to get my nard and break it open and pour it all over his feet. I think this is a spontaneous outburst, as it were, of her adoration for Jesus. She's sitting there hearing him teach. She's sitting there with her brother who was just dead and is now at the table eating dinner with them. And I think she's just overcome with love and worship to Jesus. And the best thing she can think of to do is grab the most expensive thing they've got and spend it on Christ. You know, perhaps you can think of an extravagant gift that you've given to somebody. Maybe uh, if you're married, maybe you've given it to, uh, to something to a spouse, fine jewelry or romantic getaway. Maybe back when you were getting engaged, there was an expensive ring or something involved in, in how that, that began. Uh, maybe there's a treasured heirloom that you've handed down to a family member, um, an out-of-the-blue care package for a friend far away. There's all kinds of ways that perhaps you could think back in your own life and see times that you've been inspired to give something that was costly, something that was sacrificial because you wanted to express your heart, you wanted to express your love for this person. And I think we see a beautiful picture of that in, in Mary pouring out this very costly oil uh, on the, the head and the feet of Jesus as an expression of her love. Sometimes a spontaneous act of generosity is the only thing that seems to give adequate expression to the love and affection in our hearts. But here's the question that bugs me as I'm watching Mary take this oil. Because it's very easy to go, wow, that was so costly for her. That was really nice of her to break this oil open on Jesus' feet. But when I start to think what my worship of Jesus costs me, I start to think, I'm not, I don't know if my heart toward Christ is quite as devoted as this. So I think it's worth asking ourselves, does our worship of Jesus cost us anything? Do we show our love for Christ in acts of sacrifice and generosity? In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David is making kind of a business transaction about some uh, land that he's going to use uh, to, to build an, an altar to the Lord. And the, 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 this person is trying to give him the land, saying, just take it. I just want you to have it. And David says, I will not take it for free. I will pay you for it. Because he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Like it's a principle in David's mind. I will not offer something to God that was free. Like if somebody gives me a bunch of money and I just turn around and hand that to the church, like that, or, or spend that on, on caring for people in some way, like that's good. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do. But it didn't cost me anything. It cost somebody else something. But worship as a principle, if worship is an expression of love and adoration and affection for the Lord, at some level, it, it should cost us something. We've been, we're reading, if you're following along in our Bible reading plan that we're working through together, we're in the book of Leviticus right now. And Leviticus, man, explains the worship and the way that there's systems of sacrifice and where they have to go and what they have to wear and what they have to say and what they have to do. 
Worship was messy for the Israelites in that day. Worship was time-consuming. Worship was costly. Because the Lord wasn't just saying, bring me something of what you have. He said, give me your best. Give me your first fruits. That's what you bring. Give me a lamb without a blemish, without a spot. Give me the first fruits of your crop. That's what God calls for. And so the people of Israel, in their covenant keeping with God, worship was very costly to them. And I think by comparison, our worship of Jesus requires so little that we tend to think showing up in a worship service once a week is good enough, right? I've done my duty. I've checked my box, right? I want you to show up for worship services. I'm not against that. I'm for it, or I wouldn't be leading one. But our heart toward the Lord is what's in question here. It's what, what is at stake. What is my posture toward Christ? And when I'm asked to, to give or to do something or to, to commit time or, or resources or talent that, that stretches me or that calls me to make some sacrifices and say no to some other things, or well, I really plan to do this thing that weekend, but I'm being called on to do something. In the, in the name of our relationship to Christ and our worship of God, we need to be willing to ask ourselves, am I willing to give something up in my worship of God? Or is it, I'm going to be a worshiper of Jesus as long as it's convenient and fits nicely into the boxes that I've set up for my life? I don't think Mary would have thought very long to answer that question. Mary says, Jesus is worth the most expensive thing I've got. I worked all year for this. And I'm okay pouring it out for Jesus because he's worth that to me. If that calls to me, that challenges me, it convicts me of my own heart toward the Lord at times and its lack of that kind of devotion and affection. You know, I think this act of worship demonstrates that the central treasure of Mary's heart is Jesus Christ. Her treasure is not the stuff that she has, although apparently this is a pretty wealthy family. They have a tomb. Most families probably wouldn't have had access to that except borrowing one from someone. They've got this expensive oil that they've brought from afar. So this is apparently a pretty wealthy family. But her stuff is not her treasure. She's willing to spend it for Christ. In uh, his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper says this, the opposite of wasting your life is living life by a single, God-exalting, soul-satisfying passion. The well-lived life must be God-exalting and soul-satisfying because that is why God created us. And passion is the right word because God commands us to love him with all our heart. And Jesus reminds us that he spits lukewarm people out of his mouth. Revelation. The opposite of wasting your life is to live by a single soul-satisfying passion for the supremacy of God in all things. I think we've got to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ my soul-satisfying passion and my greatest treasure? Lord, make this true. Let this be true of us. And if it's not, let's pray and plead with the Lord, make this true of me. Lord, will you elevate your own worth and preciousness and value in my heart to such a degree that I would say the single soul-satisfying passion of my life is the glory of Jesus Christ.
Well, everyone in the room is not thrilled with this extravagant, costly act of worship. Because we find in verse 4 that somebody is going to speak up, express some concern over perhaps the, the wisdom, the prudence of such an act. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, tells us in parentheses, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Okay, there we go. So he's going, this is a waste, right? 300 denarii, 33,000 bucks, right? That's a lot of money. Think of all the poor people we could have fed with that ointment by selling it and caring for the poor, right? And that sounds like a good and holy, reasonable maybe argument to make. But then John tells us a little bit behind the scenes, verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Oh, now we get what's going on here. Judas couches his concern, his selfish ambition to get more stuff in these humanitarian, holy, sacred uh, terms, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Think of all the people we could help with that money. And we see here clearly an expression of self-interest and even sinful gain, right? Because John tells us that he was stealing money from Jesus' purse. Wow, right? That's a certain level of like audaciousness in your sin, right? Let me be the caretaker, the treasurer for Jesus and his disciples. And along the way, I'm going to be just skimming off the top a little bit and putting some in my own pocket, right? Wow, that takes a certain kind of disregard for somebody. A disregard for Jesus. Where we see Mary with this extravagant devotion to Jesus and she thinks so highly of him that she doesn't care how much it costs her just to show her love for him. And Judas, on the other hand, goes, you're worth so little to me that I will steal from you. Not only will I steal from you, I will oppose this act of worship and couch it in terms that I think you might support, right? Because he knows Jesus cares about poor people. That's been throughout his ministry. That's no secret. So Judas goes, let me say this in a way that Jesus might agree with me. And he might go, oh, you're right. Let's, let's scoop as much of that oil back up as we can so we can maybe sell it for, I don't know, half of it or a quarter of it or something, right? So maybe he can get Jesus on his side. Have you ever clothed your selfish desires in religious language? Do we ever kind of baptize our selfish, sinful ambitions in holy-sounding terms? I wonder. So Judas objects. We should be giving this to the poor. That's not what he cares about. And in that inside information about Judas that John gives us, we see that what Judas is really doing is demonstrating the central treasure of his heart. Money. Himself, if you want to take that even a little bit farther. 
So the central treasure in Mary's heart is Jesus and his worth and his value. She just wants to pour out everything she has to honor him. The central value in Judas's heart is how can I get more for myself? How can I accumulate more money, more wealth? Church, what a dangerous temptress is wealth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 7-10, through we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, just the desire, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just desiring to be rich does that to you. Just wanting wealth does that to you. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of riches and the the journey to accumulate more stuff for ourselves and better jobs for ourselves and better schools and education for ourselves and nicer cars for ourselves and better furniture for ourselves and more status in our culture for ourselves is a dangerous desire. It is a spiritually destructive impulse that plagues us and calls to us and begs for our attention and our affection. So as I see Mary, and I see Judas, i got to ask myself, where is my treasure? Is Jesus Christ the most important thing in the world to me? To you? Or are there idols and false gods clamoring for your heart's attention and affection? They'll always be there. They'll always be clamoring. They'll always be trying to get your attention. Are their teeth sinking in? Or is Jesus so precious to you that the call of these lesser lovers don't have any sway with you? It's easy to look at Judas and just dismiss him Well, of course, he's like that. He's Judas. Jesus even called him a devil back in John chapter 6. He said, I've only got 12 and one of you is a devil, right? He said that to his disciples. So it's easy to go, yeah, yeah, Judas is just like that. But there's truth in here for us to consider. We dare not look away from the heart of Judas and, and miss an opportunity to examine our own hearts and to ask ourselves, what's there? What's important to me? What's precious to me? What in my life calls to me for my attention and my affection more than Jesus? Did you know the average Super Bowl ticket this year is $5,300? That's the average, which means there might be some cheaper, although I looked recently and the cheapest one currently available was like 3500 something like that. Right? 
means that there's tickets that are more expensive than $5,300, right? Where we spend ourselves reveals something about our hearts, reveals what we treasure, right? Jesus said as much. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why it says, don't, don't store up treasures here. Don't bother with all the houses and cars and money and trinkets and jewelry. Don't, don't store up riches for yourselves here because your heart's going to be with them. You're going to care about this and this life and this earth. It's just temporary. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, thief doesn't break in and steal. What we do for eternity matters for eternity. What we spend on Jesus carries on into eternity and has implications for our lives, not just now, but forever. So Mary and Judas, portrait of abandoned, extravagant, costly worship, and a portrait of sinful, ambitious, greedy, self-love. Well, we get Jesus' verdict in verse 7. So Judas has publicly objected, wait a minute, this should be spent on the poor. Jesus says in verse 7, leave her alone. (laughs) I I like that. I like how just plain that is. I'm not messing with you, Judas. I'm not letting you go there. I'm not letting this become a discussion. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I don't think he intends anything callous against the poor by that statement. He's just speaking of the opportunity, the very limited opportunity that existed at this time for the people that had Jesus there with them. Because in six days he's going to die. A few days after that he'll rise, and a few days after that he's going back to heaven, right? So there's only a limited window of opportunity for you to be with me. Let her take advantage of it, right? Don't, don't hinder this from happening. But look, so, and there will always be needs around you, right? The poor you will always have with you. There will always be needs. And meet them. He calls us to meet them. It's no secret that Jesus' heart is for the poor. So this is not dismissive of the poor. But it's about priorities. Is our priority... Serving the poor is our priority worshiping Jesus Christ. I think they should go hand in hand. If I'm worshiping Jesus Christ, I'm going to care about what he cares about, right? So he's not dismissing. But look at this, where he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In fact, the language there could be translated, she has kept it for the day of my burial. So if the it in view is this oil, this nard that she's been holding on to, then he's saying she has held on to this ointment for just this purpose, even if that wasn't what she was intending. He's saying, this moment, there's something beyond just the surface happening here. There's a spiritual reality that's being pointed to by this ointment, and that is for my burial. It would have been common in that day for, for them, for loved ones, to prepare a person's body for burial. And so Jesus is foreshadowing his coming death and burial, which are just six days away at this point. She's kept this for my burial. So 
we can see then that we'll only see the true significance of Mary's gift to Jesus if we hold in our view the journey that Jesus will take in just six days up the hill of Calvary to a sinner's cross. Mary's act of worship only seems extravagant if we fail to consider the extravagance of Jesus' gift to us. We celebrated it in the Lord's Supper a little while ago. Jesus gave everything for us. In response to that, what act of devotion or adoration or worship could we possibly do that would ever look extravagant, that would ever match what Jesus has done? That's obviously not the point that we're trying to like match Jesus gift for gift. Well, I can outgrace it. That's useless. That's not the point of it. It's, just, it's, it's a heart of gratitude that we should respond to Jesus with for what he's done. But we only think Mary is being wasteful and extravagant by pouring this oil out on Jesus if we fail to see how much Jesus is giving as he goes to the cross. Just as Mary broke the bottle to remove the oil, so would Jesus' body be broken on the cross. Just as Mary poured out her oil on Jesus' feet, so would Jesus' blood be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 3.1 says, Behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us. I love the word lavished. More than was needed. Just kept pouring and giving. What manner of love He has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Jesus has given everything for us. So here's the bad news. I asked the question at the beginning, which one are you? Are you Mary or are you Judas? The bad news is, without God's intervention, we're Judas. We're all Judas. There's not a one of us that isn't Judas if God doesn't change us somehow. We're self-interested. We want what's best for ourselves. We want our own comforts, our own glory, our own entertainment, our own pleasure. That's, how, that's what we live for. That's who the world lives for. If we're outside of Christ, if God doesn't do something to change our hearts, we have Judas hearts. And it didn't end well for Judas. You think forward in the story. It doesn't end well for him. He ends up separated from God. Ends up in tragedy and destruction. But the cross can transform our Judas hearts into Mary hearts. Jesus can change our idol-worshiping, rebellious hearts into hearts that treasure Jesus Christ and are willing to give all we have for His glory and honor. Because He carried our idol-worshiping Judas hearts with Him to the cross. And He paid our criminal's debt so that that wouldn't stand against us. And then he offers us a new heart. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5. If you're in that Judas place, and you've never made the decision to, to name Jesus as your Savior, and to, to look to Him and what He accomplished on the cross in the extravagant gift of Himself and His life 
to take away our sins and his resurrection from the dead to defeat death and the grave and to remove it from us, then today could be that day. Don't, don't miss an opportunity if you've never done that. Or even if you would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you're not, just not sure, it's not too late. Jesus can change your Judas heart into a merry heart. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're confident of that, but you look at your heart and you look at your life and you go, you know what, there's some, there's some ways that I'm just kind of out of step. There's some ways that the heart of Mary to give sacrificially, costly, at great expense to herself just for the honor of Jesus, man, that, that sounds hard for me. That doesn't sound like what I, what I want but I want to want it. I want to have that kind of heart, but I'm not sure that I do right now. If, that, if that's you, there's an opportunity this morning. Just do business with the Lord. Just pray in the quiet of your own heart and mind and just ask Him, invite Him to change your heart. He does that. That's what He does. He's in the heart-changing business. And so if you see something in your heart that you don't like and you think is not pleasing to God, take it to Him. We tend to try to hide it, Right? As though we think we can fool God. Well, I see that in my heart, but I'm going to like just brush that over here and keep that in a corner. As long as nobody knows about it, then no problem. That is foolishness. God says, bring it. Bring it. Bring your mess. Bring your brokenness. Bring your sin. Bring your selfish ambition. Whatever it is in your heart that you go, I don't know that that's pleasing to God. Bring it to Him. And ask Him. Invite Him. Lord, will you change this in me? Will you show me what it means to have a merry heart, a heart that values and treasures Jesus Christ above all else. Let's pray together.